I've shared with you before as as a church about the life of Louis Zamperini. As a quick refresher of of Louis' life, uh, there have been multiple movies, books, and even articles written about this man's life. He was a runner in the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. He flew planes in World War II in the Pacific Theater, where he eventually crashed in the Pacific Ocean. He spent 47 days adrift in the ocean on a life raft with sharks surrounding him. He would be rescued by the Japanese where he would spend two years as a prisoner of war. There he almost starved to death and was often beaten within an inch of his life. Anger and vengeance overwhelmed his heart towards his persecutors in that Japanese camp. Upon returning to the States after the war was over, he experienced awful nightmares from the trauma. He spent his time in bars, drinking heavily to the point where he would pass out. Drinking made him unrecognizable. His wife, Cynthia, begged him to stop drinking. It did no good. In drunken stupors, he would hit his wife and she would become bruised on her body. He made plans to return to Japan to hunt down and to kill his persecutor. But he kept losing his money in bad financial deals and could not make the trip. Cynthia became pregnant, gave birth to a little girl. But his nightmares continued, and so did Louis' violence. Eventually, Cynthia took the baby and left. All he had left was alcohol and an all-consuming rage. Fall of 1949, Billy Graham started a three-week crusade in Los Angeles. The movement of God was so powerful that those three weeks turned into eight weeks of people coming to faith in Jesus every night. One night... During the crusade, underneath the big top tent in the heart of Los Angeles, in walked Louis. Billy Graham preached the gospel, and Louis gave his life to Jesus. That night, he and Cynthia returned home, and Louis gathered all of his liquor bottles and emptied them into the sink. He went to sleep that night, and for the first time in five years, he slept through the night without nightmares about his captors. He found the Bible that the military had issued to him. The next day, he went to a park and sat under a tree and began to read. For the first time in his life, he had peace. Tears fell down his cheeks as he basked in the presence of Jesus who had just changed his life. You see, Louis, from that point forward, started loving his wife, Cynthia. He started caring for his daughter. He started loving and leading his family well. He started serving in the local church. He started sharing the gospel with complete strangers. And eventually, he started a boy's ranch for at-risk teenage boys. Jesus changed this man's life. He became the husband and the father that God called him to be. You see, when you meet Jesus, he changes your life. 
The moment you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, into your life, and he changes you. He changes the way that you think. He changes the way that you feel. He changes the way that you live. He changes your entire character. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 14, we see where the Holy Spirit is, has changed the lives of two men, and now they are taking the gospel to the nations. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series entitled Sent. For the past few weeks, we have been traveling with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have been traveling. I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas have been traveling. Uh, They made their first stop on the island of Cyprus. They went north into modern-day Turkey, in which they preached the gospel in Italia and Perga and then to Pisidian Antioch. Now they're headed west into the city of Iconium. And that is where we pick up in Acts 14, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of His grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and and your hearts with joy." Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. As the apostle Paul is on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas, they're going to various cities preaching the gospel. 
making disciples, planting churches. The task of advancing the gospel was difficult, dangerous, sacrificial, painful, rewarding. At the end of chapter 13, we see the disciples, they're full of joy in the Holy Spirit. And as Paul and Barnabas continue to play offense with the gospel, they're reaching new people and new cities with the gospel. The Holy Spirit is working in them and through them. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the spirit-empowered character of these men and how God can use you to advance the mission of the gospel. The first thing I want you to see in the text is the spirit-empowered boldness. Spirit-empowered boldness. Paul and Barnabas would always begin their work in a new city by going to the synagogue. They went to the Jews first. Why? Because the Jews would not listen to them if they didn't. We studied Paul's sermon to Pisidian Antioch last week and how he boldly proclaimed the Old Testament scriptures to them. Now they're in Iconium doing the same thing. They go to the synagogue, boldly preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And look at verse 1. A great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Sadly, unbelieving Jews partnered with unbelieving Gentiles, and they start slandering Paul and Barnabas. But it doesn't change anything. Paul and Barnabas doubled down. In verse 3, they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. Paul and Barnabas, they were not intimidated. They weren't afraid of opposition or conflict. They were willing to be unpopular to speak truth. Question, are you willing to be unpopular for Jesus? Are you willing for people to oppose you, to disagree with you? Are you willing to not be liked for the sake of knowing Jesus? You see, boldness necessitates going against the grain of the culture around you. It means speaking the truth even when it's not popular. Now, boldness doesn't mean being a jerk. It means you're immovable from your conviction. You're willing to stand on truth even if no one else does. See, being bold means you have a medal about you, that you're willing to stand firm. It's a mark of the apostles. Remember back in Acts chapter 4, where John and Peter stood before the, the same Jewish leadership that condemned Jesus to death, and they stood there, and Peter and John after they were told to stop preaching Jesus, they said this, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't it amazing? These are the same men who weeks earlier, they were hiding behind locked doors. They were afraid of what just happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. And now in chapter four of the book of Acts, we see them as bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit has empowered them to be bold for the sake of the gospel. In fact, after they are dismissed from the Sanhedrin in chapter four, they go and gather with the church and they begin to pray together and listen to what they prayed for. They prayed and now, Lord, considered their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. There's a, a cry from the heart of the apostles. Oh God, make us bold for the gospel. Make us a people who are unashamed of Jesus. Make us a people who are not willing to move from the conviction of the truth of who Christ is. 
as Paul wrote from a Roman prison to the church at Ephesus. He asked them to pray for him. What did he ask for them to pray for? Safety? Health? Release? Comfort? No. He said, pray that I may be more bold. Ephesians 6, Paul says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak it as I should. Paul knew that if he was not bold for Christ, people would not hear the gospel. And if people don't hear the gospel, if Paul was going to be timid or fearful or cowardly, it would mean eternal hell for other people. And so, in fact, boldness is an act of love. It's a demonstration of your love for other people to love them enough to tell them the truth. To be bold for Jesus means that you are proclaiming truth to people. You can't dictate how they respond. Your job is to boldly proclaim the gospel, to tell them about Jesus. Westwood, let us pray for boldness. Let us be a people who pray, oh God, make me bold in my faith. Lord, I feel the fear of man. I'm afraid of what people think about me. God, make me someone who is bold for you, who's unashamed of declaring the hope I have in Jesus at school, at work, on the ball field. Why? Because other people's eternal destiny hangs in the balance. Because this is the model of the New Testament. That when you meet Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers you to be bold. The second thing we see in the text is not just Spirit-empowered boldness, but it's Spirit-empowered wisdom. As the city was divided over the presence of Paul and Barnabas, we see an attempted murder right here. Verse 5. Paul and Barnabas flee. They get out of town. And yet, when we get to verse 20, towards the end of the passage we just read, they're in Lystra. A situation is getting out of of hand. A crowd is is wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to make a sacrifice in their their honor. And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they stay in that moment to preach Christ where Paul would eventually be stoned and left for dead. Okay? Here they are in one situation, running for their lives. And in a similar situation, they're staying and taking the beating. All right. How do you know when to do what? There are times that you flee for safety. And there are times that you stay and you take the punch. How do you know when you're supposed to run? And how do you know when you're supposed to stay? Spirit-empowered wisdom. How do you get wisdom? You ask God for it. That's what James says in James chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. God loves to give wisdom to his children who seek him for it. And the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom in your decision-making when you're seeking him, when you are asking him for wisdom. You see, there are times in which we have to make a judgment call. It's not a black and white issue. It's not a right or wrong issue. It's a judgment call issue. 
And it's in those moments that we must seek the wisdom of God. We have to ask the Spirit to give us insight, to give us direction and guidance. You see, God loves to give His children wisdom when we ask for it. If you're facing a situation like, I don't know what to do here, then you seek God for wisdom. God, would you give me direction? Where do I go with this? What do I do here? Now, there are times in which we already know the will of God because it's clearly proclaimed in Scripture. Those are things we don't have to pray about. If God has said it clearly in His Word, we do what the Word says. But in those moments where it's just a judgment call, you need discernment, the Spirit loves to give wisdom to His people. In fact, the book of Proverbs is a great book to set up camp in which you are just devouring, seeking God for wisdom and direction on difficult situations and even difficult people in your life. Now, ultimately, wisdom is found in a person. Jesus is the wisdom of God come in the flesh. Whereas Solomon was wise, Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is the one greater than Solomon. And so when you know Jesus, you have wisdom living inside of you. And He will give you wisdom as you seek Him. You see, the kind of men who change the world have been changed by Jesus. And they have Spirit-empowered boldness, Spirit-empowered wisdom, but thirdly, they have Spirit-empowered humility. Spirit-empowered humility. We see it here in the text. As Paul and Barnabas flee Iconium, they come into the territory of Lystra. While they're there, Paul's preaching. He sees a man who's been lame, has no power, no strength in his feet. And he's sitting there listening intently to the message. And the Spirit prompts Paul to speak a word of healing over this man's life. And immediately he jumps up. He's up on his feet. God was performing a miracle to affirm, to solidify the legitimacy of the gospel message that these people had never heard of. Well, as the crowd sees this, they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. So the priest of Zeus, and he brings bulls into town to sacrifice, and people are going to start worshiping them. But did you see the response, Paul and Barnabas, verse 14? They, they tear their robes. Okay, it's a Jewish sign of horror, of disgust over blasphemy. This is what the high priest Caiaphas did when Jesus proclaimed before the Sanhedrin, when Jesus said, I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At that moment, at that moment Caiaphas rips apart his, 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 his jacket, his, his, his garments, now, he did it for show because he was gladly fine, glad that he could finally accuse Jesus and condemn Jesus for saying that. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they, 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 they rip it. They go running into the crowd and they're shouting, Hey guys, we're people just like you. And we're preaching good news to you. That you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Now, did you notice here that Paul's message to the Gentiles is now different than what he says to the Jews? He's not using the Old Testament here. He's using creation and culture as springboards to the gospel. See, Paul and Barnabas here have a posture of humility. They're longing for these people to worship God, not them. They're pointing away from themselves. 
They're not taking any credit for this man's miraculous healing that just took place. It's a picture of John the Baptist in which he proclaimed, I'm not the Messiah, but there's another who's coming, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. This is a picture of pointing away from ourselves, saying this is not about me. My life is not about me. What just happened is not about me. This is the constant posture of the believer. This is for us right here. We're a people who don't want credit. We don't want glory. We want, don't want fame. We don't want the acclaim or the praise of man. We are a people who point the world around us to the only one who's worthy of worship. I love how Count Zinzendorf said it like this. He said to preachers, preach, die, be forgotten. It's a great mission statement for me. Is that there's a sense in which I don't want anybody to remember my name. I want people to remember Jesus. He is the one that we gather around. He is the one who rescues you from sin, death, hell, and the grave. We run to Jesus. We don't live for the fame of our name. We are a people who will not be remembered a hundred years from now by this world. But you'll be remembered by Jesus. He won't forget your name. If you're in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He's got your name. You don't have to try and make a name for yourself. In fact, what if you make it your mission to say, I want to live in such a way that no one remembers me, but they remember Jesus. They exalt in him. They love him. They treasure him. This is the posture that we are to have as followers of Jesus. You see, humility is a trait we have to pursue because the second that you think you've got it, you lost it. The second you think, I'm the most humble person I know. ruh <laughs> Right? You have to pursue it. It's not something that you achieve. It's not a destination that you get to. When you're 99 years old and your teeth and hair have fallen out, you're still pursuing Jesus. You're still having to daily deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. You have to continually say, God, my life is not about me. I don't want to be remembered. I want Jesus to be remembered forever. You see, humility is having an accurate perspective of who you are in light of who God is. I have found that the closer you get to Jesus, the more humble you become. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize, I don't deserve to be here. You're just grateful that you're included. Hear me. It's hard to be prideful standing next to a bloodstained cross. Humility means you are still continually amazed by grace. You are still shocked over God's great love for you. And here's what I've also found is that humility is attractive to the wise. People, people who are prideful, arrogant, full of themselves, they love the way that they look. They desire to be famous. They want to be well-known. They're never satisfied. Never. You see, the human heart can never be satisfied by staring in the mirror. 
The human heart can never be satisfied by staring in the mirror. The human heart can never be satisfied by staring in the mirror. You see, we were not made to find our hope, our satisfaction, our identity in what we look like. You will never be satisfied looking at yourself. Never. This is why people in Hollywood are miserable. This is why people who are famous are miserable. They're pursuing, they're chasing after the wind. They can't catch it. It's elusive from their grasp. You see, pride is ugly, it's repulsive, it's unattractive to the wise and to the humble. Your heart was never designed by God to be satisfied by anything in this world other than himself. Now you would think that if there was anybody who knew how to be satisfied, it was King Solomon. Here's a guy who's king of the nation, probably one of the wealthiest people in the world, unlimited gold and jewelry and wealth. He had a thousand women to choose from. He had the finest of wines and foods and delicacies that he could feast upon. And after having all the wine, women, and song, he wrote Ecclesiastes. In fact, Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, he says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What had happened? His heart was not satisfied in God alone. He pursued it in women and in wine and in wealth, and it never could be a part of his heart. At the end of the book, he finally has that last glimpse of wisdom. And when she says this, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments. Get low, get humble before the Almighty and then treasure up his word in your hearts. Paul and Barnabas are warning the Lystrians, do not worship us. Do not venerate us. We are not gods. We're pointing you to the one true God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the posture of the believer. This is what we must diligently pursue. We declare for the rest of our days, I'm not a big deal. I'm not awesome. Jesus is awesome. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. We point to him. So we see spirit-empowered boldness, spirit-empowered wisdom, spirit-empowered humility, and fourth and finally, spirit-empowered tenacity. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they end up 60 miles from home in Lystra. How they got there, we don't know. But somehow they got word, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra, and so they show up to finish what they started. They stone Paul. 
drag him out of the city thinking he was dead. Now, what we're about to see, y'all, oh man, here we go. This is grit. This is persistent. This is a gospel tenacity here. Paul was a man's man. We see here, this is a guy who looks like he's just gone 12 rounds with Apollo Creed here. And what does he do? Verse 20. He got up and went right back into the city. The job's not done. The mission's not accomplished. There were still people to reach with the gospel. I love how Oswald Chambers said it. He says, tenacity is the supreme effort of a man refusing to believe that his hero is going to be conquered. Well, as followers of Jesus, our hero cannot be conquered. We have a compelling passion, a a stubborn resolve, a no-quit commitment to the gospel. I think my opinion, verse 20, is one of the most inspiring verses in the entire Bible. Can you imagine being beaten so badly that people thought you were dead? And then you go right back into the heart of the city to the people who just tried to kill you. That's a tenacious heart. This is a man who's taking a punch and he's getting back up by the grace of Jesus. This is a moment Paul would never forget. In his second letter to Timothy, he said, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No, may God would raise up more men like this. Men with grit, men who can take a punch, men who are willing to stand firm, to go right to the heart of the mission of the gospel and not quit. It reminded me this week of April 23rd, 1910. Former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt was in Paris, France, where he would give a speech that it would eventually win him the Nobel Prize. A portion of his speech declared this, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with these cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. I'm going to ready to run through a brick wall. <laughs> In a culture that wants to quit, walk away, be passive, not show up and not even try. Oh, that God would raise up Apostle Paul's who are willing to show up and work hard, and yes, you're going to fail, and yes, you're going to be knocked down, and yes, you're going to make mistakes, but you're fighting. You're, you're not on the sidelines, man. You're in the battle. 
You're pushing back against darkness. You're holding fast to the gospel. You're preaching Jesus with boldness and with humility. That you're a, a man who's been changed by Christ and you're eager to make people known the gospel is too valuable to walk away. This message that we have received and has changed us is far too precious for us to yawn at, to sit idly by. This gospel changes everything. Oh, that God would raise up men with spines of steel and hearts of velvet. That we would be men who are both tough and tender. Men who are willing to fight bullies and stand up to those who hurt the weak and the vulnerable. That we protect the orphan and the widow. This is the kind of man we see Paul here. This is a man who is willing to stand firm. But we also see here in the text, he's a dependent man. Notice I did not say independent. He's dependent. He needs others for strength, courage, wisdom, and strength, encouragement here. Don't miss the role of the local church. Look there at verse 20. It says, after, after, after the disciples gathered around him. Right after Paul had been bloodied and left for dead, the people in Lystra who followed Jesus, they came together and they rallied around Paul. What did they do? We don't know. But I want to use my sanctified imagination and presume that they bandaged up his bloodied wounds. They fed him food. They gave him water. They prayed over his life. They encouraged him and championed him. This is a dependent man who needs the local church. And the local church is being the local church right here. These believers in Lystra, they circle around him. They rally around him. Paul, we're so proud of you. And we're praying for you. You get back up. You keep going. And just like what God did for Elijah in the desert after he did battle at Mount Carmel, just like what the angels did for Jesus after his battle against Satan in Matthew 4, the church rallies around Paul. They care for him. They support him. They encourage him. They pray for him. He regains his strength. Hear me on this. Men, you need the local church and the local church needs you. Don't miss that. Before we hold up Paul as a man's man who can take a punch, he's also needy and dependent for brothers and sisters who will walk alongside him. And you need that in your life. You need men and women in your life who will encourage you and challenge you and pray for you and walk alongside you. You are not an independent man who can do this on your own. You can't get to the finish line of the faith walking on your own. You need the church to persevere. You need the local church. And hear me, the local church needs you. The church needs men who will lead and love and encourage and pray and walk alongside and champion. Men using their gifts to care for orphans and widows. Men who are financially doubling down the mission of the gospel so that more people might come to know Jesus. Men who are willing to expend their lives not for their fame, but for the fame of Jesus. Men who are willing to give their lives so that they might be forgotten and Jesus be remembered forevermore in your life. As we celebrate Father's Day today, may God raise up men who can lead and love their families, 
who get on their knees to pray, who ask their children for forgiveness, who are tough and tender, who are careful, and who are wise and dependent and needy upon Jesus. So Kenneth, what are you, what are you calling us to? What's your impact points for our church? Right here. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep going. Why? You have a mission worth living for and a Savior worth dying for. Did you see the end of verse 20? The next day, Paul left for Barnab- with Barnabas for Derby. How far is that? 60 miles. Still bruised. Still bloodied. Still weary. Still passionate. He doesn't quit. He keeps going. The man who tried to stop and snuff out the church is now suffering with grit. He's sharing and showing the love of Jesus with the world. You see, Jesus changed his life. And Jesus changed Louis's life. And if you're in Christ, Jesus has changed your life. So may God raise up men who will change the world. And we see it in the Apostle Paul. But moreover, we see it ultimately realized in the perfect man's man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tenacious and humble and bold and wise and goes to the cross and gives his life to ransom you, to bring you to himself for the forgiveness of sins so that you might become who he made you to be. When you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and you follow him.